thank you very much. It was, uh, so when you speak or when I speak, I, I always feel, oh gosh, you know, God's been already working and here I am coming to spoil everything. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I don't spoil it too much and I make some kind of contribution. Um, so, first thing I'm going to do is actually just read the passage or the passage that I'm going to go through. It's not too many verses. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. Um, the main passage is basically John chapter 7 from verse 33 to 11. And we'll talk about that because it's got an interesting uh, history. Uh, but then there's a couple of verses either side that I also need to read to, um, to provide context for this whole passage. So let me start from John chapter 7, verse 31. I'll just read that, and then I'll start with my passage. And you'll see where I'm going um, with this. I do have a plan in mind. John 7.31, well, maybe if I read from verse 30. It's Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, according to my, this, I cover this in my fourth book, uh, Jesus, the Light of the World. In fact, he, that's the verse that we're going to read just now. Um, and at one stage, the authorities want to arrest Jesus. So this is just after that. It says, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miracles than this man? And then on to our reading, I'll start from verse 45. So what happens is the chief priests um, send somebody to, 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 to arrest, uh, to, they send these people to arrest Jesus, and then basically the people come back without having arrested him. Um, and that's what happens here. I write about this, and in the book, uh, I, I think I'm a bit cheeky, and I do apologize to the Cockneys who, who may be reading it, but these, th this mob of people, probably the same people who eventually arrested Jesus, um, not, look, not too long afterwards, um, you'll see what they say. Finally, the temple guards came back to the chief priests and Pharisees, who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? And then the guards declared, no one spoke the way this man does. You had to have been there, the gov. <laughs> I mean, these are ruffians. They were, not, they were not gentle with Jesus. We know that later on. You mean he has deceived you also? I mean, the Pharisees' mob were ruffians you know, to enforce the law in the temple, etc., etc. And they're shocked that these enforcers have been uh, captured, if you like. Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob, which knows nothing of the law, does a curse on them. Nicodemus, now how many of you read John's Gospel? Nicodemus is mentioned three times. We all know John 3, and we know that he buried Jesus, but many people might have missed this one. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and was the one who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? Simple enough question. But look at the response. They replied, huh, are you from Galilee? Two, look into it, you'll find that a prophet doesn't come from Galilee. And then our passage, you can actually click through to the end of this slide. I think just to click one, two, th twice or so, you'll see the readings. 
That's it. But Jesus went, so each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, it's the same word that's used in when Jesus is, at Jesus' resurrection, when Mary and them went to the temple at dawn, just when the light was breaking. He appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. I mean, this is a fascinating story. It, uh, it, it means a lot. They made a stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who had heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Then Jesus spoke again to the people. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then the last verse I wanted to read was 8.46, and you'll see where, where I'm going with that later on. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Go to the next slide, please. So there's six slides I want to go through just to try to give you some background. So it goes on click, so each click, and then I'll tell you to click the next one. Now, this passage is an interesting passage. It has an interesting uh, theological stroke Christian background. It's sort of like Mark chapter 16 from 9 to 20. You'll know some of you in their Bibles, it says the ancient manuscripts, many ancient manuscripts do not have that particular text. It's the same with this one. And what's also interesting is the next point is that Sometimes it's in these texts, but it's in a different place, slightly different place. Um, interestingly, sometimes at the end of John's Gospel, and interestingly, even at the end of Luke 21, or Luke 21 just before the Lord's Supper. Um, and then maybe the next point. Most authorities nevertheless believe this event actually did happen, um, but what's interesting about it, then I ask myself, and, and this is what I explore in the book, is why is it not in the ancient, most ancient manuscripts? What's the reason? And of course, we know that as the people wrote the scriptures, they'll have been able to draw from so many incidents of Jesus' life, and they'll have chosen the ones that they feel are the, the ones that 
you know, consistent with their priorities and what they want to, to bring across about Jesus' life. My own personal view is that it's possible that when John first wrote his gospel, he left it out. But remember that John lived for quite a long time. He was the last of the apostles to, to live, and he, he died um, in close to 100 AD. Um, and it's possible that he said, you know, uh, maybe there was a big argument in the church. We'll see why there might have been an argument about this, 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 this particular story. So I'm the PR manager of this fledgling faith, and John's about to write this, and he talks me through it. I say, you know what? We're already regarded as reprobates. The Romans think that we, we have these cults in the, in the, at night, and we eat dead people and all that kind of stuff, or we eat flesh and all that kind of stuff. Christians were accused of the most horrendous things. And now here we have something which is, seems to be morally ambiguous. Do we really want to put that in? Um, so that's my view. And eventually, I think that they felt they should put it in. And I personally am very glad that it's in the scriptures that I've got. The, the last one, is there another point? And based on my assessment of the Jewish context, which we'll be looking at now, I believe it's actually in the right place. Um, so, next slide. Okay, I'm going to go through a few uh, snippets. First click. This is Nicodemus' second mention in the Scripture. Um, what's interesting about Nicodemus, do you remember in, I talked last time about Nicodemus and the woman at the well, who was the Samaritan and, and all that, and how fascinating that the woman at the well, who was a Samaritan, another race, another religion, another people, a woman, you know, who was a little bit dodgy morally, she got Jesus' message immediately. Nicodemus, who if you read the scriptures is clearly one of, the, he's, in, he's in the Sanhedrin, so the 70 people who see, so he is probably one of the people who preached on the main big occasions. And yet this learned person took the rest of Jesus' ministry to really come to faith. Jesus spoke to him in that John 3. This here indicates that he's definitely either on the fence or has made his decision, but he hasn't come out. And it's only when he demands Jesus' body, when Jesus had died, that you say, this guy really is a believer. How interesting that the one who's got the most took the longest to come to faith. The one you thought, ah, this one, why is Jesus even bothering talking to this woman? She's the one who brought the whole village and Jesus stayed another extra two days there, uh, talking to them, ministering to them, and bringing them to faith. So just an interesting aside. But the point that he made is, are we right in condemning someone before we've actually given him a chance? I wonder if that started somebody's wheels turning and he heard it, but he knew there was this woman perhaps who was in a relationship with somebody, and maybe they would use this to entrap Jesus. Next one. Jesus' claim, the reason I read John, 4, 40, John 8, 46, was remember Jesus at the end says, neither do I condemn you. I think, why did he say that? Because he wasn't part of this crowd. I think it was important because remember what he said. He said, what's the criterion? He who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. So Jesus was saying, later on he says, who of, you, who of you convicts me of sin? I mean, can any of us, would anyone dare to say something like that in public? And obviously he's claiming to be sinless. But therefore, according to his own rule, he could have thrown the first stone. But he says, no, I'm not going to throw the first, I'm not going to throw the first stone. I'm not going to throw any stone. I'll let you go. Next one. Now we're going to look later on at the miracles of Moses. Or maybe we'll, let's do it now. Uh, remember I read that John 3, 
John 7, 31, where the people said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miracles than this man? Now that's important in the Jewish context because um, we're going to see that this was part of an interesting period in the Jewish calendar. And one of the readings of this period, we'll come to it just now, but I'll just read the reading itself, is from Deuteronomy 34, the end of the law, of the Torah. And you'll see in verse 10 to 12, it says, Since then, no prophet has arisen to Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Remember Jesus' claim to seeing God? knowing God, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders. If the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than this man? For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And the relevance of that comes in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 where Moses gives a prophecy to the children of Israel. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. So yes, it's talking about prophets that would come, but the scholars recognize that this is an allusion to the one. Remember when they came to John the Baptist, they said, are you the Christ? Are you, this? Are you the prophet? This is the prophet they're talking about. So you can see that already in Jesus' signs and wonders, he's definitely claiming to be and being a prophet that like Moses. Next one. Uh, this is just a small aside. It's just a quirky thing that I've got sometimes. Remember, this happened at dawn. So if they caught this woman in adultery, presumably just before this. It was in the dark, so they were waiting or whatever, they were primed, and they grabbed her in the dark, and then they took her out um, to this place. Now, it might not seem like it, but this is a trial. So, for a trial in those times was, you carried it out before a certain type, number of witnesses, Remember, there were people with Jesus. Jesus came and he was teaching. They came, they brought the woman, and they put her in the middle. She was on trial. And then they said, the law says this, whatever, what do you say? So he, as rabbi, was actually being made to be the person who would finally say, this has happened. Cast the first stone or stone her. Now, normally... The Romans actually had taken away the right of the Jews to carry out capital punishment. So it was a trap in two ways. We'll see later on. I mean, if Jesus had said, uh, no, let her go, they'd have said, so you are going against Mosaic law. You're a charlatan. If Jesus had said, yes, go ahead and stone her, then two things. Either they actually would stone the person and then when came up to trial, they'd say, this rabbi over there who told us to. Or if they didn't actually stone her, they'd send it through to the Sanhedrin and say, this man told us to stone this woman and that's not allowed under Roman law. Either way, Jesus was in a trap. Next one. Now, the Jewish liturgical context is what really gets me very excited. Uh, can, we, can we click the first one? When did this happen? Now, obviously, this is conjecture because there's no way where it says it happened on the 16th of October, but I think it probably did, by the way. <laughs> um, so, Jesus was at this uh, festival. So, the Sukkot, the tabernacles happens after the first 10 days, which are called the days of repentance. And they culminate in Yom Kippur, which many of us will have heard. It's a big fast. The Jews fast completely, no, nothing. Nothing must pass between the lips. It's all prayer and all that. 
But what's interesting also is in between that 10 days, there's a Sabbath. Well, there must be, because a Sabbath is every, 10, every seven days. So inside there, and it's called Shabbat Shuva, the Sabbath of return, of repentance. To return and to repent is the same word. Next. The Sabbath of returning, and it's, it gives an assurance of God's forgiveness. So the people repent, repenting, and in the middle of that, somewhere along the line, there's this wonderful verses that we read from Micah. Micah is the reading during that Sabbath. So if you look up today what the Jews are going to see during the Shabbat Shuvah, which is probably already passed, these are the scriptures, these are some of the scriptures that they will read. Um, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives transgression? of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. It's an interesting one because sin is a problem in two ways, I believe. The first is that we have done things wrong. Things have been done to us and we have done things to others. So there's an issue there about the past. But sin is also very pernicious because it's about our nature. So it's not just about the fact that we've done things wrong in the past, but we're going to do things wrong in the future. And if there's going to be any resolution of this issue, something needs to change. Sin needs to be defeated within us so that our future is resolved. So there's two aspects here. So God forgives in terms of what we've done, but he also addresses the power that sin has in each of us. Those are the two aspects of sin that Jesus came to resolve. Next one. So after those 10 days, there's immediately a a period of uh, called Sukkot, or... Feast of Tabernacles, and this feast, or it, it, it's a fascinating thing. I've actually only recognized the, there's a, there's a, every morning, there's a fast, fascinating festival called the drawing of the water, and um, water's drawn somewhere, and it's mixed with the, with the, um, the, the, the blood in the altar and it flows at the bottom at the same rate because of the way it's constructed but there's a lot of water being drawn and drunk and so on so when jesus for example in the middle of the week if you if you look at john chapter 7 just before this um, jesus came and he 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 made an amazing claim because he, he comes there and he says halfway through the feast he then says um is it on the halfway? Where is it now? I can't find it. Where it talks about, uh, on the last day, sorry, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And of course, people will have been killing themselves laughing. Uh, yes, it's a, it's, a la- it's a land without water, but they've been drinking water and splashing water around. It's been one of those amazing festivals. And you must have wondered, what is Jesus talking about? Who could be thirsty? Um, It's only later when they thought about it because he said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. So it's not just about you receiving the water, but the water flowing out of you into the world. Um, But that is the kind of festival that was going on. It was very joyous. I mean, there were people doing gymnastics and juggling. There was a lot of light, big candelabras in, in the, in the, in the um, temple palaces at night, reading of scripture. It was a very joyous um, experience. And then it culminated in what they call the last day of the feast. Next one, please. So this day was called Shemini Atzeret, which was the cleansing of the temple afterwards. They don't have a temple now, so it's sort of just a a day which doesn't make too much sense. But they've got another day called Simkat Torah, 
Um, in, in many places, it's two separate days, but in some places, it's one. And it's the demonstration of the Torah. The Torah is, is taken out of, the, they call it the ark, and it's paraded, and people read. Everyone can read a piece of scripture. They read from, uh, um, from uh, Deuteronomy 33, the one that we've talked about, and 34. And it's the end of the liturgical calendar. So the liturgical calendar starts from Genesis 1, verse 1. It's called Bereshit, which is the beginning, in the beginning. And it goes all the way through to the end of Deuteronomy. And then another cycle starts. Now on this day, they do something very interesting, which is to read up to the end of uh, Deuteronomy. And they read also uh, Joshua chapter 1. And then they immediately read, start from Genesis. So although it's only the next Sabbath which is supposed to be starting, they say that there must be a smooth transition between the old and the new. An interesting tradition. Uh, the next one, if there is one here. Yes. So, and the readings at the beginning of the year are from Genesis chapter 1 to 6 and Isaiah 42. And what's interesting is the one that I talked about before on this Simkat Torah, it's about Joshua following Moses. And so it's sort of like this, this whole thing of Jesus being the one who is a prophet like Moses, in the same way that Joshua followed Moses, Jesus follows Moses. But also here, we see that this Isaiah 42 talks about what kind of a Messiah we can expect. And I think this is important because if I just read quickly, um, first of all, let me read from Genesis chapter 1, just so it's done. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And then the associated reading from Isaiah 42. I'll read just a few verses from there. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one. So this is messianic, the, the, the Messiah that the Jews must expect. But what kind of a Messiah? What kind of person is this? I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This is a gentle Messiah. This is not someone who comes to parade himself, but someone who cares about those who are broken. A couple of verses later on. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people. So this is the Messiah that God is promising. And a light to the Gentiles or to the nations. And then the, verse, the last verse I'm going to read is verse 16. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. I will turn the darkness into light before them. So there's definitely a theme of gentleness, but there's also this theme of light, bringing light to the people. Are we, uh, somebody? <laughs> okay, okay. Next one. The basis of the trial, I'll go through this quickly, but I thought it's important for you to see that the people weren't just inventing it for their own, um, out of the blue. It actually comes from, Genesis, from Deuteronomy 22, and I'll just read the scripture so that you can see it. Um, verse 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, 
both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. And that refrain, you must purge the evil from Israel, carries on throughout this passage. I think there's four places where it's said. And this is the basis for the law. The law has two bases. One, the children of Israel chose this law. Remember, they said, this is what we want. And we're, we're committing ourselves to it way back in Exodus 20. And in fact, a lot of these laws were standard throughout those nations. There was nothing new about them. We may think they're weird, but that's how they expected their society to be. But there was another aspect of law, which was this little refrain about keeping the nation pure. So it's almost like God says, yeah, okay, you want to, to stone these people, and that's fine. If that's what you want, that's fine, that's okay. But the reason I'm doing it, there's one reason, is I'll only justify it if it's keeping the nation pure. So if there's a, like if you've got an apple and it, and it decays, you, can, you cut out the bit that's decayed if you want to stop it decaying. But if the apple is already rotten, you're wasting time cutting out one bit that's decayed because you've lost the battle already. So this is an interesting uh, little issue around humanity. So on the one hand, God wants to keep the nation pure. So, you own, he, so that's why Jesus said, he who's without sin cast the first stone, because he's saying the reason this is there is to protect purity in the nation. So if you're already impure, then what is the basis on which you're doing this? So an interesting discussion, obviously, one can have on that. Um, next one. Yes, I've already said this. Um, the basis, in fact, Jesus weakens it because the law basically said that this whole nation, if they're all, all pure, then any of them can throw a stone. So if they're all thrown, then someone, then this. But Jesus said, even if there's just one, it's fine. I'll, I'll let you go. And of course there isn't. Now what's interesting is that Sabbath on which this Deuteronomy passage was read was six weeks before this incident, just before the, 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 the whole thing of the coming of the new year and so. And the associated reading in, in, the, in, in the prophets or in, in the writings is from Isaiah 54. Now most of you will be aware of Isaiah 53, which is the lamb who was slain for us and all that. But then in 54, it carries on and talks about the consequence of that. Do not be afraid, you will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. So on the one hand, there's this issue about sin and dealing with sin. On the other hand, there's this passage which talks about Jesus' mercy to those who have fallen. And that's to each one of us. Next one. Um, yeah, so this idea of the pure nation that needs protection is actually a little bit of a myth. Next. Complex moral questions. This passage raises a lot of issues, if you think about it. First one the sanctity of the family. So I can imagine Archbishop Hoo-ha of whatever Hoo-ha saying to Jesus, in, whispering in Jesus' ear, saying, but if you just treat it like that, what are you saying about the sanctity of the family? This woman has committed adultery. Next one. What about role modeling? What are the children learning? from you just letting this person off. Next one. And what about the church? 
What's our reputation in society if we let go of this? Where are our standards? Next. And what about justice for the injured party? Now, I don't know. They say she was committing adultery, and I presume she was. So was it her? Was she married and cheating on her husband? Or was he married and cheating on his wife? We don't really know. But there is an injured party somewhere. So what, what, what happens there? Next one. Next one. There are social issues. And this is where I've sort of, over the last few years, I've really started to understand some of these issues and be drawn into discussions. So I've got big words now. This is where you get big words, misogyny. I mean, this is clear. So the first thing you say is, where's the man? Why, why did they just bring this woman? So you say, well, they, they actually have, have it in for women. Uh, the other thing, they want to stone her. This is gender-based violence. Next. These are all men, almost certainly. Patriarchy. Men ruling the world, deciding what happens. Gender discrimination. Again, where's the man? Next one. Abuse of power or agency. Abuse of power, you have the power and you just do bad things with it. Agency means the ability to enforce your will. Next one. Entrapment, must have been. You don't tell me that they were happened to be walking by and they heard this, this thing. Oh, oh, there's someone committing adultery here. Let's take him out. Oh, Jesus happens to be at the temple. Let's take this woman. No, no. This was organized. This is entrapment. Next. Mob rule. Can you imagine how fearful, how scared she was? With all these men shouting, angry, holding stones. Next. Exploitation of the poor, divorced, widowed. I don't know. I'm just saying, remember, these are the days when a woman could be divorced just because she burnt her husband's food. So you could have people, and in a society which is patriarchal, a woman found it very difficult to make ends meet. Who knows if she had found some sponsor who would allow her to feed her kids or whatever, and this was the arrangement they'd come to. I don't know. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying it could be. Or a widow. If you're a widow and you have no son, you could be vulnerable. Or if you're poor. So what are we saying about, about this? Next one. Selective justice, and this is really what Jesus was getting at. So it's fine to, you know, if I'm speeding, um, you know, I don't want to be caught, but if someone else does something, I want them to be caught and imprisoned. Figure. Next. But now this is a point where I want to just pause. Uh, when we have these discussions about social justice, there's a lot of anger and righteous indignation, correctly, about the person who is abusing their power. But I think that the world misses one very important thing, that we're in a spiritual battle. And in a spiritual battle, we're all victims. The one who abuses and the one who is abused are both victims. And I'll see why. Just go through one. The victim is violated because of biased justice. But also, next one, the mob is held captive by what I call intoxicating God complex. So in other words, the enemy has put into these people's minds, because we believe in spiritual warfare, so, and, and, and in fact, sorry, maybe if you take a step back, bullying at school. We've got a, the lady who helps us at, at, in our place. Her son is at a school where she, he's been bullied terribly. He's really struggling. Now, 
I've read, I've seen a few uh, things about bullying, and one of the big things is recognizing is it's not just about protecting the person who's been bullied, but you've got to somehow deal with the bullies. And it's not enough to put them against the wall and shoot them. You have to change them somehow. So, what's happening here is Satan gives the mistaken impression that these people are ruling and they can do what they like. But they have been duped into thinking that they are God. So you'll see here when Jesus intervenes, he actually addresses both issues. He addresses the issue of the woman. Justice, it's all about let's sort them out. Those ones with the power who are abusive. And, and I hear that. But the gospel is about transforming them. And you'll never, have a cha you'll never change the world if all you're doing is, is shooting every bad person. Because as soon as you've had that revolution, the new people come up and they will abuse their power in a different way. So where are we? So there's a transformation that needs to happen both in the victim and in the abuser. So that then is the beginning of this, and I'm not going to take long going through this because it's a lovely um, scene. It's, um, it's almost like a little play. You could imagine this play being done. Um, and the number of words spoken is actually very, very, very short. So you can imagine Jesus teaching. So it says he sits and he teaches. So these people are in front of him here and he's teaching them. And then this hullabaloo comes. They bring this woman caught in adultery. Clearly, as I said, this was uh, something pre-planned. It could be that the guy was just a guy who came and, and said, I'll do it, it's fine. Or it was an arrangement that they knew about. But they would protect the guy, and they would put this woman on the spot. Remember that although I said all those social things and misogyny and all that, those, those are expressive of their hearts, but what they really wanted to do was to bring Jesus down. That's really what they, the woman is just a prop to enable them to do that. So, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, you must remember that this is a mob. So it's not just necessarily one person speaking. There's all sorts of angry voices going on, but this was basically what they were saying. So here's this violence and anger and power and mob. In the law, Moses commanded us to stow such, stone such women. What do you say? Now, Jesus had, there was no right answer to this question. No matter which answer you gave, you'd be proven wrong. So what does Jesus do? He says, no, no, I'm not, I'm not tackling you on, on your terms. I'll take this on on my own terms. And he bends down to write on the ground. Now, a lot of people make a big fuss about what he wrote. I mean, if, 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 if the disciples were there, so they would have told us what he wrote if, there was, if it was important. I personally don't think it was important at all. It was to change the temperature, bring down the temperature. So here they are shouting and screaming, and Jesus is writing down. He's bringing all the attention to himself. The woman's on this side. He's bringing the attention to himself, He's bringing the temperature down. They keep on asking him. And then at a moment when it seems appropriate, he stands up. And of course, then they're quiet. And he says, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first. So he doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He just says, go ahead. But it'll be the one who has no sin, who cost the first stone. After that, any rogue can get involved, but just the first stone. 
And what he does now is he bends down again. Now, this stops them sort of arguing about it or whatever. He cuts, he cuts his, um, what do you call it, eye contact. He leans down, and now each of these people, he says, anyone without sin. So, no, so now they can't be a mob anymore. They're individuals. Each individual has got to look in themselves. And the, what's interesting, it says that they left, but it says they left the elders first. That's fascinating, uh, because not only if you're older, you probably had more time to do wrong, so <laughs> you know that you... <laughs> but also, they just knew. They just knew. This is the season for repentance. We have just spent 10 days spilling our guts and telling God all of our sins. Obviously, we're not without sin. And so they start going. And eventually everyone goes. So Jesus is left there with the people that he'd come with. The woman is there. Now, this is interesting, the difference between how Jesus treats someone who is weak and someone who's strong. In our world, we are taught, hardwired very quickly, that you kowtow to the, to the, to the powerful. You rub them up. You make them feel good. Not only because they can do bad things to you, but they can do good things to you as well. You want to be in ready in case you need something. But to the poor, we're not quite so gentle and we actually dismiss them just like that. And Jesus completely turns this around to the rich and powerful, if you like, I would say he was direct. Just told it how it was. You, you've got agency, you've got power, let's not mess around, let's call a spade a spade. But to the downtrodden, listen to how Jesus speaks to her. So he, he ignored them. I mean, ignoring somebody who is powerful is horrible. I mean, remember when Jesus was tried, he was taken to Herod. And he actually didn't, he knew that Herod wasn't part of this whole thing. We have to get back to Pilate. Herod is a distraction. And it says he didn't say a thing. He was completely silent. Then they had to take him back to Pilate so that he could be sentenced. He could have gotten away from it. If he had tried to impress Herod, he could have easily gotten out of this, out of what he had had, but it wasn't part of God's plan. Anyway, then it says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, now this word woman is the same that Jesus used for his mother, dear woman, it's not like woman, it's woman, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a gentle word. Where are they? So what is this woman's posture all this time? She's standing there, she's got her, her, her head covering over her, just wondering what's going to happen. When is that first stone going to bite? And what's going to happen? And maybe what's going to happen to her children? Presumably she had some. And so Jesus says, where are they? It's an invitation to stop being a victim and to start participating in society. So she lifts her veil and she looks around. And she says... And sorry, and then he goes on, as soon as she said that. And then she doesn't know what to do. She, she's still not clear what's going to happen. This is the rabbi. This is the law of Moses. Blah, blah, blah. Then Jesus says, then, neither do I condemn you. So there's a relief. But then there's an opportunity. When he says, go now and leave your life of sin, a lot of people, well, there are many ways to view this. But it's so consistent with the end of the year. The end of the year, you, you, you confess your sins to God and you commit yourself to a new life of obedience to God. He's giving her the same chance that everyone has. And he's giving her, he's saying to her, you know what, you don't need this. There's another way. There are other ways. That's what he leaves to her. 
I don't know whether they talked later, whether there was interaction, I don't know. But it struck me that his engagement with this woman, to the, to the, to the baddies, if you want to call them that, he said one word, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at That's all he said to them, to these many people. But to this woman, he actually said, I think it's five things. Where are they? She must have responded to that somehow, looked around. Has no one condemned you? He's drawing her to, 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 to actually be part of things. She was probably dazed. She was probably in a huge daze. He's bringing her back to life. She looks around, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. That's the third thing he says. Then the fourth thing, go now. I suppose go now and leave your sin, but go now and leave your life of sin. He's saying you have agency. Don't believe that you're a victim. Don't be a victim. There is a way to live your life which actually makes you... um, more assertive, etc., etc. I mean, I, I don't want to get into that, but the point is there were these four things or four or five things that Jesus said to this woman. So to the rich, he wasn't using flowery language, oh, you are great, and wasn't it wonderful how generous you've been giving to this cause and blah, 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 and to the, to the poor, pff, you know? And so that's a big lesson for us too, um, is how we deal with, this, with the disadvantaged. Um, and it's interesting that many people who claim to be involved in social justice um, are so much against what the bad people do, but in terms of how they actually treat those who are downtrodden, you may not uh, see anything different. So I just thought it's worthwhile just sharing those thoughts um, it's a study. It's in my book, my fourth book, Light of the World. Um, but it's so much about how God created the nation of Israel from scratch. He drew these people out of slavery. He gave them the law. He gave them the, the leaders and the kings. He protected the nation. All of it was to bring them to a point where when he sent his son Jesus he could use that background to present himself and to present God's nature. So if I think, what is, what is my purpose today? I think one, hopefully it's foundational, to try and understand more of the foundation, the context into which Jesus came with the Jewish people. But secondly, the, we prayed a lot or we sang a lot about Jesus, what a beautiful name, what a wonderful name. Uh, so that we just are, again, in awe. What a beautiful name. What a wonderful name. The name of Jesus. Okay, that's it.